0: We've done Ezekiel chapter 1, and wasn't that a glorious, glorious chapter with that confusing vision of Ezekiel, but the emphasis there on God is glorious, God is everywhere, God comes to His people, God has not abandoned them. Wonderful picture there. We moved on and we we saw in Ezekiel 4 and 5 a bit of his drama a couple of weeks back. Remember how Ezekiel is a nut job who would probably lock up in Greylands. And yet, as he did this drama, it was out there because what God was about to do was out there. God was going to judge Jerusalem. And today, we, we've, we've skipped a few chapters. Chapters 6 and 7. Thank you, Ria. And we've gone forward to chapters 8 9, 10, 11 of Ezekiel. Now, I'm not going to read all of that for you. But please, go home and read through the chapters. 8, 9, 10, 11. It's kind of all one vision, so it's difficult to break it up. And it's all linked in together. (coughs) But you might have noticed that that's not what we read this morning. We read Deuteronomy Exodus 34, verses 5, 6, and 7. And then we read Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church in Sardis. I bet you guys know that quotation from Exodus chapter 34. If you don't, learn it. The Lord, the Lord. Compassionate, slow to anger, full of mercy, abounding in love forgiving iniquities from generation to thousands of generations. It's a fantastic verse to remember, isn't it? And yet, what we usually do is we read the first half of that passage, and we ignore the second half. What does God say? He says there, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. We like to think of God as lovey-dovey and, ooh, isn't He nice? And He is. But He's also the righteous one. Pop quiz! What is the first commandment? (coughs) Almost. Almost. I heard it there. The the sort of preamble is, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other God before me. Isn't that interesting? The most important thing that God wants to say to His people is not... I want you to be nice people, I want people to like you, I want you to be good people. The first thing God says, the most important thing that God says, here is my contract, my covenant, my agreement, I will be your God, you will be my people. Number one, me only. Only me. You shall have no other God before me. In fact, the second commandment sort of goes on that line even more. Yeah, before no other bow, thine knee, or any other part of you. So what has this got to do with Ezekiel? And what has it got to do with Revelation? Well, I want to suggest to you, if you've been doing the Bible readings, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and we're going to come to the end of it during this week, and I hope you're enjoying it. But the book of Revelation shows us a picture of the return of the Lord. Tells us about the day of the Lord, the day of His judgment. And I want to suggest to us that what we're going to see in Ezekiel 8-11 to is a historical snapshot of what will come. And the reason there is going to be a day of the Lord is the same reason that there was judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. Well, let's have a look. Turn with me <coughs> in your Bibles, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. <coughs> wow. We're going to focus on chapters 8 and 11. So what Ezekiel sees here? He's sitting there, he's got about uh, 20 more weeks or 10 more weeks to go of his lying on his side. Now he's sitting in his house, um, probably at night when nobody can see him lying, and he's got the elders of the exiles sitting there with him in his house, waiting for him to give them a word from the Lord. And we're told there in the first two verses of of chapter 8 that Ezekiel, as he sits there, he sees a vision of God, someone like, like the Son of Man, like, like a human, and, and this thing like a hand, he doesn't even dare to call it a hand, comes and he feels like he's been lifted up by his hair. Remember, his hair at this stage is huge, long. He hasn't been cutting it at all. That comes ten weeks later. Picked up by the hair and in the Spirit, he's carried away to Jerusalem. God is about to show him what is happening there, and why there is going to be judgment on Jerusalem. I'm going to explain to him why the city will fall. First thing, they arrive there at the temple. Now the temple has three gates, uh, and, and the Spirit and God takes Ezekiel, and they arrive at the entrance of the northern gate to the temple. It's an important gate because it's the one that was closest to the palace. So this is the gate that the king would use. And all the way through chapter 8, God goes to Ezekiel and says, human, look, do you you see that? And as they stand at the, the gate, the north gate, God says to Ezekiel, do you see that? Because there at the temple entrance stands an idol. Ezekiel calls it a statue of jealousy that brings jealousy. And there in the place where God is to be worshipped as you come in stands this thing as if to say, God isn't enough. We're not told what it was an idol to. If you read the interpreters, they probably think it was an idol to uh, a sturdy. I think it's a sturdy. It doesn't really matter. A few years back, Hezekiah did a good job. He removed idols from the temple, from the land. If you know your kings of Judah, (laughs) along came King Manasseh, who was a right royal insert word of your choice. He not only brought the idols back, but he made it worse. He's the one that put the idol in the temple. His son, it was a chip off the old block, continued the tradition of his dad. Idol worship grew in the nation. Then we have an eight year old come along, King Josiah, gets rid of the idols, burns and crushes the one that Manasseh had put in the temple. Wonderful has been restored. They've turned back to God. And yet God brings Ezekiel to the temple and there is an idol again. But Have a look at verse 4. I was taken to the north gate... (coughs) of the inner courtyard of the temple where there is a large idol that has made the Lord very jealous. Suddenly, the glory of the God of Israel was there just as I had seen it before in the valley. For me, chapter 8, verse 4 is one of the most astounding verses in the Bible. Because here stands an idol Here stands a physical representation of the people saying to God, Sod off! We will worship who we want to worship. Forget the Ten Commandments. Forget everything that you've taught us. We will have our idol. And yet God's glory is there. And I think it's one of the most amazing verses because God doesn't get kicked out of anywhere. (laughs) Just because the people said, we don't want you, God, doesn't mean God says, right, if you say go, I'll go. Obviously, I don't have a choice. You've made your decision. No. Here in the temple courtyard is the idol and God's glory is there. Because God does what God wants to do. And he's pretty miffed about it as well. <laughs> Just by the by. Goes on. Says to Ezekiel, Have a look. There's a wall there, and there's a bit of a hole in the wall. I want you to dig your way through this wall in the temple. And Ezekiel digs his way through, and he comes to the secret hidden chamber. And he finds a doorway and he opens the doorway and what does he see? He sees 70 elders of Israel. Now think back to Exodus again. Around um, about the time of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Remember what Moses did? He, he took 70 elders of the people up and they saw God and they did not die. And the reason they saw God is so that they could encourage the rest of the of the people 70 elders representing them then 70 elders representing the people here but what are the elders doing in this hidden room they've engraved on the walls pictures of animals most of which are animals which are unclean and slithering and horrible. And they're standing there burning incense and praying to the animals. Maybe they thought that God had left them. After all, the city had been ransacked. Exiles had been taken. God must be powerless, mustn't he? In fact, they say, God cannot see us. God has abandoned us. So we'll try and find help from a drawing on a wall. Idiots. We're told the name of one of the guys there is He's Jezaniah, the son of... (coughs) Uh, Shaphan. Now, Shaphan was one of the King Josiah's major officials. He was a man of God. It's told about some of his other sons. Remember Jeremiah, round about this time, in Jerusalem itself, prophesying? One of the other sons of Shafan was out there protecting Jeremiah and making sure he didn't get killed. godly family, you'd say. And yet we see here one of the children of Shaphan leading Israel away from God. God shows him another thing and says, you think that's bad, Ezekiel? Let me show you. There's even worse abominations to come. He takes him out and he sees some woman mourning for Tammuz. Babylonian God, Tammuz, I think it's Tammuz. Is it Tammuz? Thank you. (coughs) Now Tammuz was a Babylonian Sumerian God, one of the gods of their captors, the god of basically fertility. So when winter came and everything died, they mourned for him. And when spring came, they had orgies orgies for Tammuz. Well, the Babylonians, they must have a really strong God because they beat us. So we'll worship their God. God says to Ezekiel, you think that's bad? Come this way. Brings him in to the temple, in front of the altar. Now the temple was built facing sort of east-west. This is a place where the priests could go, not the ordinary people. God brings Ezekiel in there. And we see here 25 men facing not the altar, but the sun on their knees, worshiping it. One of the things, Deuteronomy four nineteen says, Don't be idiots and worship the sun. Worship the creator of the sun. And they thought, Wow, this temple works out well. We can repurpose it to worship the sun. Because it faces the right direction. And they turned their backs on God. And God says to Ezekiel, Have you seen this son of man? Is it nothing to the people of Judah that they commit these detestable sins leading the whole nation to violence, thumbing their noses at me and provoking my anger? Our God is a God who is so patient with us. who even at this stage, His glory is still there in the temple despite all that's happening. And yet our God is not a God of limitless patience. He says, there will come a time when I will respond. You know, as I, as I look at that picture of, of, of Jerusalem and the temple, what I sense there is in some way so similar to the spiritual layout of society today. We have a pick-and-mix spirituality. So we'll take just, just yeah, a little bit of Tamar's worship. A little bit of worship of the sun, maybe. Oh, I like snakes, so I'll worship a snake. Just a little bit of yoga. A little bit of a horoscope. That, that's okay, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I think I need a Buddha in my house. Rub its belly. Maybe I should get somebody in to just realign my my furniture so that that the energy flows well. And I'll hang a crystal from the mirror in my car to annoy the guy behind me. (coughs) I'm exaggerating a bit, but I'm not really. It's all about choice. What works for me. Maybe I'll come. Maybe I'll, I'll follow... Jesus for a while and I'll follow him completely but I don't like that particular aspect of the faith so I'll just ignore that bit no no that's rubbish I'm not going to follow that part of his teaching I think Gandhi said it better than Jesus on that occasion And the Bible comes into that and says, Well it's it's not about what works for you, it's about what's right and what's wrong. It's about bowing down to God alone or bowing down to another. Feeling self righteous right now. Because you know, this is written to people who called themselves God's people. That's the frightening thing. And the letter we read to the church in Sardis, written to the church in Sardis. And what did God say to them? He says, Well, you're dead go back a few verses, the church in Pergamum says that you guys are living immoral lives and you're allowing it in the church. Do something about it or I will come and fight with you with a sword that comes from my mouth. Today's reading from Revelation, we see the final battle where the sword comes from his mouth and destroys all those who oppose God. And he said that to the church. That's stupid to worship the sun, gravings, idols, tamils. But it's even more stupid to seek after other spiritualities when we know the one who is spirit and truth. One of the things which irritates me the most is multi-faith services. because we don't worship the same God. I can't sit there and pretend that a Muslim and I can worship together because we're worshiping different gods. So why do we do it? Why did they do it? (laughs) Chapter 8, verse 12, they did it because they thought God couldn't see. And they thought God wasn't enough. And they thought God wasn't powerful enough, strong enough, able to meet their personal needs enough. It's in the service preaching plan that I have to do this topic. I don't like speaking judgment and hardness. But stay with me. Because chapters 8 to 11 is not about the wrath of God. It's about the grace of God. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 9. We're going to fly through chapters 9 and chapters 10. Chapter 9. God said this is enough is enough. I am now going to pour out my wrath on these people. If they don't want me, if they want to live without me, then they will face me. And he says in chapter 9, he calls together six angels. And he says to these six angels, your job is to go throughout the city. You are to destroy all of these people. They come from the north. They stand for the Babylonians that are going to come and destroy the city and totally ransack it. And these angels, representing the attackers, they do that. In the vision. I told you it was about grace though. Because there's a seventh person that God calls. Dressed in a priest's clothing. Got a pen on his belt. God says to him, go throughout the city and put a mark on all those you feel the way I do about what's happening. Put a mark on all those who are horrified that I am being rejected. Put a mark on all those who are true to my name. And he says to the other six angels, and don't you dare touch a hair on the head of those people. And and the angels go out and and all seven of them leave (coughs) And there's corpses everywhere. And poor Ezekiel, this is a horrible vision to have. And, and, and he, there towards the end of the chapter, he just looks at God and says, God, what are you doing? Are you going to wipe out the whole nation? And at that exact moment, the guy with the pen arrives and says, I've done the job. you going to wipe out the whole nation? No. But I will not let the guilty escape. I will save those who are horrified for the sake of my name. It's rather horrible, isn't it? Would you use this passage for evangelizing your neighbor? (laughs) Spurgeon uh, did a sermon on Ezekiel chapter 9. He says here, I'm afraid that it does not cause some of us much anxiety when we see sin rampant around us. We say that we are sorry, but it doesn't fret us much. Doesn't cause us much trouble. Doesn't cause us as much trouble as would come to a lost sixpence or a cut finger. Did you ever feel as if your heart would break over an ungodly son? Spurgeon says, I do not believe that you're a Christian man if you have such a son and you have not felt an agony on his behalf. Did you ever feel as if you could lay down your life to save that daughter of yours? Says Spurgeon, I cannot believe that you're a Christian woman if you have not sometimes come to that. It's an interesting definition of a God follower, isn't it? Someone who is jealous for God's name and who grieves when God is grieved and rejoices when God rejoices though so that's not in this particular passage I pray that our hearts are so entwined with God's heart that we cry when he cries that we laugh when he laughs that we mourn when he mourns. That on the day when he returns, he will look at us and say, your character is my character because I've worked it in you. And in chapter 10, Ezekiel sees again the chariot of God that he saw in chapter 1. And God announces to Ezekiel, that he is leaving Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 11, he leaves and he goes out to the Mount of Olives, the hill to the east of the city. And the glory departs. Ichabod, in case you're wondering what it means on your bulletin. It's the name that, uh, I think it's Eli's, Uh, stepdaughter, gave to her son when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. And it means the glory is gone. But then we see in chapter 11 the elders of Judah. 25 of them, people we haven't seen yet. They're standing there. We're almost done here. They're standing there. What are they doing? They are leading the people of Judah and saying, we have it made. Don't worry. Don't fret. Everything's going to be right. We are the choice cuts. Those who got taken away into exile, they're the scraps of meat. We are the choice cuts. We're in the pot. Ha, 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 ha. We're the good stuff. I lead the people astray, says the Lord, bringing injustice. God says to them, I've left. You have no hope. And as Ezekiel prophesies against them in his vision, one of the men there, Paltiel, can't pronounce his name, falls down dead. And once more, Ezekiel's on his knees saying, God, are you going to kill us all? I understand Ezekiel saying that. Because I'm sure that as he saw God's justice being done, he looked in his own life and said, well, am I any better? You're going to kill everyone, Lord. Surely we deserve it. And this message came to me from the Lord, Son of Man, the people still left in Jerusalem are talking about you and your relatives and all the people of Israel who are in exile, saying they are far from the Lord, so he has given them given us their land. Tell the exiles this, therefore. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols. I will give them a singleness of heart. I will put a new spirit within them, I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and I will give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. They will truly be my people and I will be their God. Ah, Lord God, will you destroy us all? No! I will be true to My covenant, I will restore. Those the people in Jerusalem say are the dregs and the scum and the castoffs, I will bring back. Because I am not only the God of wrath, I am not only the God who judges the guilty, I am the God of mercy, compassion. The God who forgives iniquity. as he promised in Deuteronomy if my people who call on my name I think it's Deuteronomy humble themselves and pray and turn back to me I will save them and heal their land. That's the Nicholas authorized version. What promises are those I will be a sanctuary for you. The temple sanctuary is abandoned, but I am the sanctuary, says God. And I'm with you and I'm for you. I will gather you. I will return you. And I will give you the one thing that you lack. A single heart and a single spirit new heart, new spirit. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord settled there. Here in Ezekiel, in his vision, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, we see the glory of God leaving the temple. And although the exiles return and they build a new temple, and Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Haggai and all of those guys are doing a brilliant job, the glory of God never returns to that temple. Because the glory of God entered Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> And said, I will rebuild the temple in three days. I will be, yeah, Jesus. <laughs> I will be your sanctuary. And one day when Jesus returns, that beautiful picture from Revelation, the New Jerusalem coming down, and there is no temple. of the Lord is there and the promise of Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 16 to 20 will be fulfilled utterly a new heart even now we have a new spirit it's going to be good. (laughs) And Ezekiel, at the end there, is probably grabbed by the hair again. I don't know why the hair had to be grabbed to carry him around, but anyway. And he returns back to his house by the Kibar River in exile to a people who are hopeless, the elders wanting to know, just give us some word from God. In the last verse of chapter 11, he sits down and he tells them, judgment is coming, but our God saved.